We're continuing through Acts, the book of Acts, and um, the account we have to look at this morning is long. It's the whole of chapter 10, and then it goes into the first 18 verses of chapter 11. Uh, I've pr we printed all of uh, chapter 10 in your bulletins for you to, to look at, but I'm only going to read um, Acts chapter 10 through, let me see what I said, verse 24. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is, what is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything he had, that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet letting, being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking Simon, who was known as Peter, if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. The story goes on that Peter does tell Cornelius and his relatives and close friends the story of Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And Peter says, what's keeping us from baptizing them? Interesting story from our perspective, radical story from Peter's perspective. Because Peter had been told not to associate, not to enter the home of Gentiles. And here he is being their guest and telling, him, telling them the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is look at the three main characters 
of, in this story in reverse order of appearance. So we start with Peter. Peter's dealing with a lot of changes. God is revealing more and more to him about what it means to be in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And it, there's a little hint that you might not pick up on that Peter's already made a few changes. He's sta staying at the home of, of Simon the Tanner. Now, a tanner is a person who works with leather, which means he's a person who works with dead animals, which means, according to the Hebraic code, he is unclean. He is not someone with whom you are to associate until he goes through the cleansing ritual, and he would have to do that outside of his home because that's where he does this tanning work. So Peter's already seeing that some of these restrictions that have, have characterized the, the Hebrew people are, are starting to fall away. But there's one big thing, one big limitation that he has not realized will be falling away, and that is associating with Gentiles. In fact, realizing that God is opening the door to the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, in other words, to the whole world, rather than just the people of Israel. Now, why would they have had these rules? It doesn't seem very nice not to associate with certain people and to only associate with your type. And the reason for the rules is understandable to a degree when we realize that the Hebrew people were a minority in the culture, and the culture, as ours is, was very powerful as an influence to the people. So the, the, they had a, an understanding that they shouldn't assimilate into the culture because in so doing, they would lose their identity as the Hebrew people and possibly their identity as the people of God. So they made sure to associate just with each other, so none of those other voices or influences would pull them away from God. But God is saying, the time has come. Now, this assimilation idea, you know, we, we are light in the world, we, we are salt and light in the world, we are to influence the world in a positive way, so we say, well, shouldn't that be the influence? And that's what I've always thought, that, that we should influence, uh, the believers should influence others to, to see God. But it, sometimes we have to admit it, it goes the other way. I remember a kid in my youth group in Minnesota, um, I won't name him, but he came along on one of our mission trips. He was not, uh, he was, his family was part of the church, but he wasn't one of the mm, good church kids. He was a little nasty. Uh, he made fun of people a lot. It wasn't, wasn't a really nice guy. He was very popular. He was a football player and very cool at school. But in his mind, that gave him even more justification for making fun of others. And he came on this trip, and I thought, oh, good, because we had some really strong, good guys in this youth group. And I was sure that these really strong, good guys would make sure that the one whose name I will not say would, would, would assimilate that way and become better, become a kinder person. 
The opposite occurred. These wonderful, great guys who I could count on almost always to choose to do the right thing, to honor the others within the group, the girls, um, <laughs> failed to do so. In order to look good to this guy, they started making fun of the girls, started criticizing them, started being rude, and my heart sank because my plan didn't work. But that's always the hope, isn't it? That the good will influence the not so good. I remember another mission trip we took and one of our kids got in trouble, actually had to be sent home. And as I was uh, dealing with this, I overheard one of the staff say, why would anyone bring a kid like that on a trip like this anyway? And I thought, because he needs a trip like this. And maybe not that time, maybe the message didn't get through that time, or actually, because he got sent home, it did. He changed because of this experience. But people thought, only good kids should be able to come on this trip. Only good kids should be able to participate in youth group. And I thought, that is opposite, people. The good kids, good relative term, of course, but the kids who understand, the kids who have a relationship with God, what, what better place, what better people than they to influence those who don't know God? So the people of Israel had the mentality that I might have developed if that kid um, had won the day, that kid who was a negative influence. I moved, we moved a year ago this week, by the way, um, from a place where there are a lot of Amish people. And the Amish people have that mentality. We have to maintain our identity. We have to separate from the world. But God here is saying to Peter, that's not true anymore. That's not true anymore because you, I'm not calling you to be afraid. I'm not calling you to protect your identity as the Jewish people. I'm calling you, as we read in our call to worship, as the Jewish people to bless the world with the good news of God. So Peter is changed. He is called to change through three V's, a vision, a voice, and visitors. The vision comes, Peter is challenged to give up some of those uh, old laws, some of those old understandings, and God speaks to him three times. Remember, Peter, three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? In John 20 and 21. Now, Peter again. Peter, don't call anything unclean that I'm calling clean. Let these boundaries go. I am opening the door to the Gentiles. And then, if those two things, hearing the voice of God and seeing a vision from God weren't enough, just at that time, the visitors from Cornelius come and say, Peter, are you here? We'd like to take you to one of those Gentiles. Peter gets it and goes along with them and says when he greets them, I now realize how true it is 
that God does not show favoritism. Next character is Cornelius. Cornelius was a very important man. Centurion comes from cent, which means 100. So this guy was in charge of 100 people in the army. He was in uh, Caesarea, which was the capital. Uh, So he was um, called to be an important person over over many people in an important place. So this was a guy that, that was important. But beyond that, he was a good guy. He was a religious guy. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, a lot of people today say, well, I'm spiritual but not religious. And I want to say, what does that mean? Mostly it means that they have an inner sense of spirituality that is not connected anywhere else. And to me, and I believe from what God has revealed to God, That is not true spirituality because Jesus, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, says you must be born again, which and that can be translated born from above or born of the Spirit. The the Holy Spirit makes us spiritual people. And religion is sort of our guiding principles to make sure we nurture our spirits. But this guy had the religion, but not really the spirit because he did not have the Holy Spirit. But he was a good guy who did all the right things. So many people wonder, hey, Cornelius, he was a good guy. He prayed. He gave to the poor. So isn't he already saved? Isn't he already uh, acceptable to God? And in fact, it says here he's acceptable to God. So is he already one of God's sons? But there are a number of places here that makes it clear that He is not. Whatever we understand about it, he is not redeemed. He has not entered the kingdom of God because it says here um, in the chapter 11 portion that recounts this story, it says, Peter said, I give you a message by which you will be saved. And in uh, verse 43, he says, everyone who believes in Christ will be saved. And again, in chapter 11, there is repentance unto life. So it is only through Jesus Christ that we are born spiritually. And it is only through repentance, which means turning around, that that spiritual rebirth occurs. And repentance, we often think of as listing our sins and saying, I'm sorry for this one, I'm sorry for that one, I'm sorry for this one, I'm sorry for that one, and hoping we get the whole list down so that God says, okay, you got it all, you're, you're okay. But repentance is much bigger than that, but in another way, somewhat smaller than that, because it's not a huge effort on our part to make sure we get all our sins listed. Repentance is simply turning around. Turning around to say, I am no longer trusting myself. I will trust God. I will trust what God has done in Jesus Christ. I will turn from any hope I have in myself, either in my own goodness or any lack of hope because I'm not good. Neither of those things really matter. Because the main thing is, where is your trust? And if your trust is in any way in yourself, 
you're not understanding the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance means turning from yourself and turning to God through Christ who sets us free. Now, I'm not going to get in too deeply into how this salvation happens and what it means that Cornelius was a God-fearing man, a man who was religious, and what that means for his salvation before Christ. Um, there's a lot to be said, a lot to be argued around that. Um, but one thing I know, that it is only in Christ that the doors of heaven open. Helen Keller when she was confronted or first told about Jesus Christ, said, I knew there must be someone like that. So we don't know. God is working in people's hearts before they hear about Christ. And it could be that God is working in people's hearts to get them to understand the concept of Christ and that they, as soon as they hear of him, will turn and whether that is a path to salvation that concludes when they stand before him or not, I don't know. But what I do know is that the best way to be sure is to receive Jesus Christ. The best way that they can be sure is that we tell them of Jesus Christ and give them opportunity to receive him. Then we know that there is salvation, that our hope is in God, in Jesus Christ. And then, with Cornelius and all his household, Peter's still preaching, and the Holy Spirit comes. Did you hear that? He's not finished yet. And the Holy Spirit comes, interrupts a sermon. How rude is that? And that leads me to the final of these important characters in this drama. Peter appears third, Cornelius appears second, but the Holy Spirit has been involved the whole time. The Holy Spirit spoke to Peter, the Holy Spirit spoke to Cornelius, and we as the church need to be open to the Holy Spirit. So my conclusion, and I know when I was a kid, I remember, Oh, conclusion, yay. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not a short one, but it is the conclusion. This is the beginning of the end, okay? So it's, it's an excerpt from a book by one of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning, who is quoting a, a book um, by Wes Seliger called Western Theology. It was written in 1973. It's sort of a, a cartoony book, but it tells an important story. According to Wes Seelinger in his book, Western Theology, there are two kinds of people, two visions of life. The first sees life as a possession to be carefully guarded. They are called settlers. The second sees life as a wild, fantastic gift. They are called pioneers. These two types give rise to two kinds of theology, settler theology and pioneer theology. Settler theology is an attempt to answer all the questions, define and housebreak some sort of supreme being, establish the status quo on golden tablets and cinemascope. 1973, remember. Pioneer theology is an attempt to talk about what it means to receive the strange gift of life, the wild west. The wild, wild west is the setting for both theologies. 
instead of theology, the church convenes at the courthouse. It is the center of town life. The old stone structure dominates the town square. Its windows are small, and this makes things dark inside. Within the courthouse walls, records are kept, taxes collected, and trials are held for the bad guys. The courthouse is the symbol of law, order, stability, and most importantly, security. The pioneer theology. In pioneer theology, the church moves in a covered wagon. It's a house on wheels, always on the move. The covered wagon is where the pioneers eat, sleep, fight, love, and die. It bears the marks of life and movement. It creaks, it's scarred with arrows and bandaged with bailing wire. The covered wagon is where the action is. It moves toward the future, trying not to get bogged down in old ruts. The old wagon isn't comfortable, but the pioneers don't seem to mind. They are more into adventure than comfort. In settler theology, God is the mayor. He is slick and fancy like a dude from back east. His office is on the top floor of the courthouse. He looks out over the whole town as his eagle eye ferrets out the smallest details of town life. No one actually sees him or gets close to him. He keeps his blinds drawn. But since there is order in the town, who can deny that he's really there? The mayor is predictable and always on schedule. The settlers fear the mayor, but look to him to clear payroll and keep things running. Peace and quiet are the mayor's main concern, so he sends the sheriff to check out any pioneers who might ride into town. In pioneer theology, God is the trail boss. The trail boss lives, eats, sleeps, and fights with the people. They are well be- their well-being is his concern. Without him, the wagon wouldn't move and living free would be impossible. The trail boss will get down in the mud with the pioneers to help push the wagon, which often gets stuck. He prods the pioneers when they get soft and want to turn back. In settler theology, Jesus is the sheriff. He's the guy who is sent by the mayor to enforce the rules. He wears a white hat, drinks milk, outdraws the bad guys. The sheriff decides who gets thrown in jail. In pioneer theology, Jesus is the scout. He rides out ahead of the wagon to find out which way the pioneers should go. The scout faces all the dangers of the trail and suffers every hardship. He is even attacked by the Indians. Through his words and actions, he reveals the true intentions of the trail boss. By following the scout, those on the trail learn what it means to be a true pioneer. In settler theology, the Holy Spirit is the saloon girl. Her job is to comfort the settlers. They come to her when they feel lonely or when life gets dull or dangerous. She tickles them under the chin and makes everything okay again. The saloon girl also makes sure to report to the sheriff whenever someone starts disturbing the peace. In pioneer theology, the Holy Spirit is the buffalo hunter. He rides along with the covered wagon and furnishes fresh meat for the pioneers. They would die without it and him. The buffalo hunter is a strange character, sort of a wild man. The pioneers never can tell what he'll do next. He scares the hell out of the settlers. He has, you know, literally, right? Okay. (laughs) He has a big black gun that goes off like a cannon. He rides into town on Sunday morning to shake up the settlers. You see, every Sunday morning, the settlers have a little ice cream party in the courthouse with... And with his gun in hand, the buffalo hunter sneaks up to one of the courthouse windows. Then he fires a tremendous blast that rattles the whole courthouse. Men jump out of their skin, women scream, dogs bark. Chuckling to himself, the buffalo hunter rides back to the wagon train, shooting up the town as he goes. In settler theology, the pastor is the banker. 
Within his vault are locked the values of the town. He is a highly respected man. He has a gun but keeps it hidden in his desk. He feels that he and the sheriff have a lot in common. After all, they both protect the bank. In pioneer theology, the pastor's the cook. He doesn't furnish the meat, he just dishes up what the buffalo hunter provides. This is how he supports the movement of the wagon. He sees himself as just another pioneer who has learned to cook. The cook's job is to help the pioneers pioneer. He doesn't confuse his job with that of the trail boss, the scout, or the buffalo hunter. In settler theology, the Christian is the settler. She fears the open, unknown frontier. The concern is to stay on good terms with the mayor and keep out, the keep out of the sheriff's way. Safety first is the motto. And the courthouse is the symbol of security, peace, order, and happiness. He keeps his money in the bank. The banker's his best friend. The settler never misses the ice cream party. In pioneer theology, the Christians are pioneers. They are persons of daring, hungry for new life. They ride hard and know how to use a gun when necessary. The pioneer fall, feels sad for the settlers and tries to tell them of the joy and fulfillment of life on the trail. They die with their boots on. In settler theology, faith is trusting the safety of the town, obeying the law, keeping their noses clean, and believing that the mayor is up there in the courthouse, even if they can't see him. In pioneer theology, faith is the spirit of adventure, the readiness to move out, the willingness to risk everything on the trail. Faith is obedience to the restless voice of the trail boss. In settler theology, sin is breaking one of the town's rules. In pioneer theology, sin is wanting to turn back. In settler theology, salvation lies in living close to home and going into the courthouse. In pioneer theology, salvation rests in being more afraid of a sterile life in town than of death on the trail. Pioneers find joy in the thought of another day to push on into the unknown wilderness. They realize their salvation by trusting the trail boss and following his scout, while living on the meat provided by the buffalo hunter. The settlers and pioneers portray in cowboy movie language the people of the law and the people of the spirit. In the time of the historical Jesus, the guardians of the ecclesiastical setup, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had hunkered down in the courthouse and enslaved themselves to the law. This not only enhanced their prestige in society, but also gave them a sense of security. Humans fear the responsibility of being free. It is often easier to let others make the decisions or to rely on the letter of the law. Some people want to be slaves. All of that to say, where's the Holy Spirit leading us? What is the Holy Spirit calling us to do? I'm pretty sure it's not to be settlers. I'm pretty sure it's not to guard the traditions. I'm pretty sure it's to go out into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, to celebrate what the Holy Spirit is doing for us and doing through us. Peter was willing to listen. Cornelius was willing to listen. Peter was willing to change. 
Cornelius was willing to change. Are we? Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. We confess that we often quench the Spirit because it is easier to do what we've always done. We love safety and fear adventure. But you may be calling us to something new. Open our minds, open our hearts to discern what you are calling us to be and what you're calling us to do. And may our allegiance to you and our trust in you characterize our lives more than anything else. Lord, I pray that you would continue to guide this church, to trust you and to serve you faithfully. I pray for each person here, by your Holy Spirit, speak to them even now, reminding each one of the message that was given to Cornelius, of the message that was given to Saul, as we looked at last week. Saul, the one who is a rebel against you, and Cornelius, who is trying to serve you. The message is the same. In Jesus Christ, there is acceptance. In Jesus Christ, there is hope. In Jesus Christ, there is peace. In Jesus Christ, there is a whole new identity as daughters and sons of the living God, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. May these truths drill deep into our hearts that we learn to trust you more and more. Be with us, Lord God. Guide us to be faithful. Comfort those who are afflicted and challenge those of us who are too comfortable. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.